Summer camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at ycampidaho.org. Before we dig into part two of this series on the murder of Gross Point Park resident Jane Bashara, a bit of housekeeping. Already Gone shares tales of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost, with a special focus on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. You'll find new episodes are released on the 1st and 15th of the month. This week's sponsor is BetterHelp. We'll be hearing from them later in the episode. If you prefer your episodes a little bit early and ad-free, support Already Gone on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash alreadygone, where, for a small monthly contribution, you can have access to ad-free content, as well as the occasional bonus episode. If Patreon isn't your thing, I would appreciate you taking the time to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Reviews help other listeners discover the show and the cases covered here. After part one was released, I received a couple of emails. One was from the University of Detroit Mercy, advising me that back in 1983, Jane received her master's in business administration from the University of Detroit. And to the listener who reached out, thank you. I appreciate you sharing that information with us. I got a couple of other emails inquiring about the Bashara's two children. And I will not be discussing the Bashara kids. I think we can agree that considering what they've been through, they deserve their privacy and some much needed peace and happiness in their lives. Let's return to Michigan, to the moneyed Detroit community referred to as Gross Point. Bob Bashara has just returned from a romantic and brutal weekend in Oregon where he visited a woman by the name of Janet Lehman. Lehman, a 50-something grandmother, has been communicating with Bob after meeting on the website alt.com. And you may recall that starting in 2007 or 2008, Bob became enamored with the BDSM community and started participating in BDSM parties and gatherings. He enjoyed the community so much that he built his own dungeon in the basement of one of his buildings a building on Mack Avenue in Gross Point Park, the same building where his mistress, Rachel Gillette, now lives in an apartment. Bob and Rachel were house hunting, and the pair selected a home on Kensington in Gross Point Park. Bob told Gillette that he and Jane were divorced, and finally, they could be together, with Janet Lehman leaving her life in Oregon behind to join them and be their third. Because only with two women at home, could Bob Bashara truly be happy? The closing date on the new house was fast approaching. It was set for January 27, 2012. Despite what Bob told both Lehman and Gillette, he did not have the money to buy the home, nor had he approached a bank about a loan for the purchase. There was the added complication that neither Gillette nor Lehman knew about. You see, Bob Bashara is still very much married to Jane Bashara. In fact, the couple's 27th wedding anniversary was coming up in the spring. 
Bob was not in the process of a divorce, no matter what lies he told the women he was involved with outside of his marriage. And Bob's visit to Lehman in Oregon was remarkable for a couple of reasons. One is that during their BDSM play, Bob violated the basic tenets of the community, remember, safe, sane, and consensual, when he manually strangled Lehman under the guise of breath play, and then when he used a whip to beat her. This was something he hadn't discussed with her previously. His actions during their encounter left her frightened, bruised, and sore. Also, during his time with her, Lehman overheard a phone call between Bob and who he told her was a handyman. During the call, Bob became agitated, saying into the phone at one point, the fuck is wrong with you? I want this done, and I want it done before I get back. Bob told Lehman the call was between himself and a handyman, and she believed him. She knew that Bob, the entrepreneur, owned many rental properties, and she figured that the worker was taking advantage of Bob's absence to delay work that needed doing. What Lehman didn't know is that starting in late 2011, Bob asked many different people if they knew anyone who could, quote, rough up, take care of, or run over a female tenant that was making him miserable. Bob didn't lie to Lehman, not in this instance, because it appears that the phone call she overheard was between Bob and one of his handymen, a guy named Joe Gens. Joseph John Gents came into the world on January 12, 1964, born to parents Richard and Joanne. His birth was not easy, and he was injured during the delivery. He suffered a stroke. According to the book, Master Betrayal by Andrew Morlin, the stroke he suffered during childbirth caused his mental disabilities. So in addition to having educational and emotional problems, Joe lost vision in one eye because of the stroke. And Joe was one of five children. His dad, Richard, worked for the city of Warren, and his mother, Joanne, was a homemaker. The Gents' home was a 900-square-foot bungalow in the city of Warren. And if you're doing the math on that, seven people living in a 900-square-foot home. I have some cousins that grew up this way. The boys had one bedroom, and the girls had the other bedroom. And mom and dad slept each night on a fold-out sofa in the living room. That's how it was with my cousin's family. So while the Gents family didn't have much, they were happy and close-knit, and Joe's brothers and sisters looked out for him. As Joe grew to be school-age, it became apparent that he had cognitive deficits. And by the time he was seven years old, he was living at the St. Louis Center in Chelsea, Michigan during the week and coming home on weekends to be with his family. Joe Gentz was able to finish high school, and as an adult, he found work in the Merchant Marine. He married once in his early 20s, but the relationship didn't last. Gentz was known to be quick to anger, and he was thought to have a mood disorder, but specific information on his mental state in the 80s and 90s? That's not available. We know that his second marriage in 2000 produced a daughter, but Gens and his wife Donna, they split up a couple of months after the baby was born, and Donna would lose custody of the child who then went into foster care. Gens eventually gained custody of their daughter, but he too was found to be unfit and she returned to the foster system. He would marry his third wife, Rose Fox, 
in 2009, and the two would settle in St. Clair Shores. Bob Bashara became acquainted with Joe Gentz in the fall of 2011. They were introduced by a mutual friend, Steve Thibodeau. Gentz was on the outs with Rose and needed a place to live. Bob owned several apartment buildings and was always in need of a reliable handyman. So Bob helped Joe find a place to stay, and the two remained in contact. In November and December of 2011, at the same time Bob Bashara was looking for someone to, quote, rough up a female tenant, Gens was asking friends if they would help him with a, quote, hit-and-run job. Gens said that his friend Bob, quote, wanted his wife killed in exchange for a few thousand dollars and a Cadillac. Gens offered his friends specific details about Bob's wife, including that she was a high-level executive working in downtown Detroit, and Gens also provided her schedule and the route she took to and from work each day. During one of these conversations, Gens revealed that Bob's last name was Bashar. In January of 2012, Gens confided to an acquaintance that he would be, quote, coming into money real soon. So while Bob and his handyman Joe Gens are putting out feelers, trying to find a freelancer to rough up a female tenant, or Bob's wife, depending on who you ask, Rachel Gillette, Bob's longtime girlfriend, is having second thoughts about her relationship with Bob. And on January 20th, 2012, Gillette sent an email to Bob. She wanted to see his divorce papers. She needed to be sure that Bob was divorced before she bought a house with him. And while Bob had taken her out in public many times and even moved Gillette into one of his properties, she lived in an apartment in the same building as his dungeon on Mac Avenue. She was concerned about his financial situation. Having spent a great deal of time with him over the last three years, she knew that he often used money from one property to pay for repairs to another, and Gillette was well aware that Bob regularly went to see his mother, Nancy, and ask Nancy for financial support. Gillette also knew that she and Bob were in a committed relationship. In February of 2010, Bob had given Gillette a diamond ring as a token of his love and commitment to her. And when he gave her the ring, he tried to put it on her left hand, but she declined to wear it there, saying that she wanted to wait until his divorce was final and they could truly be together. What Gillette didn't know was that the diamond Bob offered as a token of his commitment was an heirloom from Jane's side of the family. Bob's daughter would testify to the origin of that diamond ring during his trial. Between gifting Gillette jewelry from his wife's collection and the Olive Garden gift card he sent to Lehman, I think Bob needs a crash course in the basics of gift giving. And while Bob liked to talk a good game about being an entrepreneur and a businessman, when push came to shove, it was Jane Bashara who paid the mortgage, Jane Bashara who paid the college tuition, and Jane Bashara who provided health benefits for the family. Jane was the breadwinner. Jane was the success story in that family, not Bob. And on January 23rd, 2012, the closing packet for the purchase of the house on Kensington was complete, and the realtor contacted Bob. So when Bob picked up the packet on the 24th, he brought with him a conditional certificate of occupancy dated January 23rd, 
2012. Bob also scheduled a walkthrough of the property for January 27th at 2 o'clock, meaning the walkthrough would happen before the closing that day. On the 24th, the realtor asked Bob about the financing of the house. He said, nothing's in place, and Bob said, oh, don't worry, I'll have everything done in time for the closing. Finally, finally, we return to Jane Bashara, the brilliant mother of two, the daughter of Lorraine and John, the sister of John, Janet, and Julie. It was on the afternoon of January 24, 2012, that Jane called her daughter from the car on her way home. And the mother and daughter are chatting and having just a normal conversation when Jane arrives home, pulling into the driveway on Middlesex in Gross Point Park. Jane said to her daughter, look, I just got home. Let me call you back in a few minutes. It was 4.45 p.m. And Jane's daughter waited for her mother to call her back, but her phone didn't ring. A few hours later, about 8 p.m., Bob Bashara arrives home and realizes that Jane isn't there. He will later state that he thought she was out running errands. But when Jane hasn't returned to the house by 11.30... Bob goes to the phone and calls the police to report his wife missing. In addition to calling police, he called several friends and family members. He even placed a call to his mistress, Rachel Gillette, and told her that Jane was missing. Bob Bashara would be up most of the night making phone calls and waiting for Jane to return. A devoted husband, just racked with worry. On the morning of January 25th, Franco Leone... A tow truck driver was cruising through Detroit looking for stolen vehicles abandoned in the city. While in a neighborhood near Seven Mile in Grosbeck, he came across a Mercedes SUV and radioed in to see if it was reported stolen. And he learns that while the vehicle is not stolen, it belongs to a missing woman. He is advised not to touch anything, and an officer is dispatched to the scene. When police arrive, they look inside where they find the body of Jane Bashara. Detectives are called to the scene, and according to Detective Jimenez, what they find inside the vehicle appears staged. The Mercedes is unlocked. The keys are on the floor of the driver's seat. Jane's purse is dumped out on the passenger seat. And at first glance, this looks like a robbery gone wrong. But when they really looked at it, there's a problem with the items that are not missing from the vehicle. Jane's cell phone her checkbook, her medication, they're still there. These are things a thief would have kept. Detectives also determined that Jane was not murdered in the alley because Jane was just wearing socks, no shoes, and her socks had leaves stuck to them. The alley where her car was found had no leaves and the ground was frozen. News quickly spreads in the community and Gross Point is shaken by the murder of one of their own especially someone from a family as well-known and well-liked as the Basharas. This was the first murder in Gross Point since 1992, but the investigative team is ready. They head to the Bashara home to tell Bob that his wife isn't coming back. Police would later say that Bob didn't show much emotion upon receiving the news, but his friends and family reported Bob's grief at the loss of his wife. While Bob is learning of his wife's death, Joe Gens is out and about. Bob Bashara's handyman has nearly $1,000 in cash, and he's playing with a fancy new cell phone. On January 26th, 
2012, Bob went to the thrift store that Gens volunteered at, and he handed one of Gens's coworkers an envelope. He told him that the envelope is for Joe Gens and it's payment for a job. Also on January 26th, police speak with Bob about where he was the day Jane went missing. Bob said that on the evening of January 24th, he was working at his rental properties or he was at the Hard Luck Lounge, which was on the first floor of one of his rental properties. Bob said that at one point during the evening, he went home to pick up some keys. Now, we know the Hard Luck Lounge is in the same building on Mac Avenue that houses Bob's dungeon, and it is the residence of Rachel Gillette, Bob's longtime mistress. When investigators dig into his alibi for the evening, they see that Bob Bashara was at the Hard Luck Lounge after 5.15. His cell phone connected there between 4.52 and 5.20. Now, the time before 5.15 may be when he was in the parking lot or other areas of the building, but not inside the lounge itself. Around 6.25 that night, Bob's phone connected to a cell tower near the Bashara home, the same tower that Jane's phone was connected to. But moments later, the phones moved. Jane's phone went north toward the location where her body would be recovered. And Bob's phone returned to the lounge. When investigators do an in-depth look at cell phone activity, they discover that after 8.42 p.m. until her body was found, Jane's phone used one particular cellular site north of 19416 Annett Street in Detroit her body would be discovered in an alley near this address on Annette Street. And while Jane's phone was very busy, every call received after 5 p.m. on the 24th was an incoming call. And listeners, I keep thinking about Jane's daughter and the casual ending of their conversation as Jane pulled into the garage of the home, saying she'd call right back. Jane didn't call anyone back. On January 26th, Wayne County Assistant Medical Examiner Francisco Diaz performed the autopsy on Jane Bashara. He would document her cause of death as strangulation, but the force with which she was strangled was so much that her windpipe was cracked. At trial, Dr. Diaz would testify that the windpipe is, quote, harder to break than bone because it's made of cartilage. A broken windpipe is unusual because it takes so much force. Diaz notes that Jane also received a beating, but he couldn't specify what she'd been struck with. It could have been a fist, it could have been an object, but he did say that Jane did not go down quietly. She fought back and had defensive wounds to prove it, including a torn nail on her right hand. At trial, Diaz will testify that Jane was quickly overpowered and likely took three to four minutes to die during the attack. And I'm wondering if anyone got a look at their hands, Joe Gens and Bob Bashara, what did their hands look like on January 25th? While the autopsy results provided insight into the last minutes of Jane's life, her autopsy also left investigators with a big problem. When Jane's body arrived at the medical examiner, her clothing should have been collected and bagged and sent to the lab. But they messed up. Her clothing went to the funeral home along with her body, which means any evidence left on her clothing was lost. This was a serious blow to the investigation. But the investigation is continuing, 
On January 27th, while Bob is grieving with his children and planning her funeral, he is given a polygraph examination and his house is searched by police. Bob will fail the polygraph and evidence techs are taking computers and DNA evidence from inside the Bashara home and garage. Within 24 hours, Bashara has hired an attorney and the attorney is wasting no time. He immediately sends a letter to the police advising them that a quote, Joseph Getz was a possible suspect in the case. Bashara stated that he had quote, threatening or bothersome interactions with Joseph Getz prior to Jane's murder. Of course, Bashara and his attorney are referring to handyman Joe Gentz, the same Joe Gentz who was flashing a wad of cash and a new cell phone on the day Jane's body was recovered. And listeners, if you think that this case has been weird up until now, hold on because we are just getting started. But first, let's hear from this week's sponsor. If you are listening to this episode on its release date of February 1st, 2020, Jane's memorial service was held eight years ago yesterday, on Tuesday, January 31st, 2012, at the Gross Point Memorial Church on Lakeshore Drive in Gross Point Farms. Not surprisingly, her memorial was attended by hundreds of people, not only Jane's family, co-workers, and friends, but community members who knew Jane and Bob from their work with the schools and the Rotary. And on January 31st, the same day as Jane's service, Joe Gentz turns himself in to police. Unfortunately, Gentz cannot keep his story straight. In one telling, he admits to murdering Jane in the garage of the Bashara home, while Bob is threatening him at gunpoint. In another version, Bob offered Gentz a ring, cash, and a car to murder Jane Bashara. Gentz told police that Bashara would kill him if he didn't get it done. And police would hold Gentz for 72 hours, but then they released him. Joe Gentz would be arrested and charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder on March 2, 2012. One of Gentz's friends later said that police didn't believe the story, but they interviewed him and held him while they looked for evidence that would corroborate his story. But police are also waiting on the lab and the testing of specimens that they collected on the 25th. These things take time to process. After a couple weeks had passed, the evidence came back, and now they have enough to arrest and charge Gentz for his role in Jane's murder. And once Gentz is charged, an evaluation is ordered, because we know that Joe Gentz has cognitive deficits. He was examined by professionals, and on July 11, 2012, he is found competent to stand trial. The same week that Joe Gentz is arrested in March, police arrive at the Mack Avenue apartment of Rachel Gillette. Her home is in the same building as the Hardluck Lounge and Bob's BDSM dungeon. During the search of her home, they remove several boxes of materials along with an evidence box. And now seems like a good time to mention that in the days after Jane's murder, Rachel Gillette filed a personal protection order against Bob Bashara. She was now afraid of him. And she had good reason to be because despite the personal protection order, Bob just kept contacting her, saying that he loved her and that they have a future together. And Bob also reached out to Janet Lehman in Oregon. He asked her to take Rachel in to protect Rachel from the police and the investigation 
Oh, but that Lehman shouldn't contact him for a while because all this stuff needs to blow over. In addition to repeatedly violating Rachel Gillette's personal protection order, Bob also encouraged his friends to contact the police with tips and information that pointed away from Joe Gantz. He wanted his friends to call with other theories of the case. Bob the Entrepreneur, Bob the Dungeon Master. Appearances are important, and Bob wanted to be seen in the press as a grieving husband, a struggling father, a man who has suffered a great loss. He needed the press to view him and present him in a positive light. Bob was regularly seen on television and quoted in the paper. He told the Detroit Free Press, quote, I had absolutely nothing to do with what happened. That his life was, quote, under siege. He told the paper, quote, I have certainly done everything and will continue to do everything to cooperate to find out who did this to my Jane. Oh, Bob. Bob said that while he and Jane attended marriage counseling, there had never been any talk of divorce. And listeners, I'm wondering what Janet Lehman and Rachel Gillette thought about those remarks. What the Gross Point realtor who worked with him to purchase the house on Kensington, his friends in the community who saw him out and about with Rachel Gillette in 2011, what did they make of Bob's comments? Bob claimed that he didn't know Joe Gentz very well, but the two were embroiled in a dispute over a $600 electric bill. Gentz thought he was owed a refund for the high bill, and Bob disagreed. Bob said that in the weeks leading up to the murder, Gentz was getting more and more insistent. Here we have Bob Bashara painting a vivid picture in the press. He's a grieving husband, suddenly a single father with two kids his wife of more than 25 years taken from him in a violent and brutal crime of retribution by someone he thought he knew. And listeners, I don't know if anyone actually believed what Bob is shoveling at this point, especially since Bob was looking for someone to murder Joe Gentz. Bob is asking around under the pretense of avenging the murder of his wife. Which brings us back to Steve Thibodeau. Thibodeau is the man who introduced Joe Gentz and Bob Bashara in the fall of 2011. Gentz confided in Thibodeau that Bashara needed him dead so that he wouldn't go to trial to testify against Bob. And when Steve talked to Bob, trying to get the lay of the land, if you will, Bob told Steve about having Gentz killed in jail, that Bob's life depended on Gentz not being able to testify. It had to be done. So... Thibodeau goes to the police and he tells them what Gentz said and about his conversation with Bob. So police ask Thibodeau to wear a wire and to go back to Bob and see what he can get. And friends, Thibodeau delivered. He went back to Bob Bashara and they have another conversation and Bob asks him to kill Joe Gentz. And this time they have it all on tape. So on June 27th, 2012, Bob Bashara is arrested and charged with solicitation of murder. They may not have him on the death of his wife, not yet, but they have him for trying to kill Joe Gentz. Bob will plead guilty to the charges, and on December 10th, 2012, he receives a sentence of 6 to 20 years in prison. 
and in January of 2013, Bob is sent north to the Oaks Correctional Facility in Manistee to begin serving his sentence. But Bob doesn't like Manistee, and he doesn't want to be in Manistee, so he will petition to be moved out of the prison. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Just 11 days after Bob is sentenced for trying to kill him, Joe Gens will plead guilty to second-degree murder. And as part of his plea deal, he agrees that he will testify truthfully in any upcoming proceedings. In February of 2013, more than a year after Jane Bashara was violently attacked in her home, Joe Gens appears in the Wayne County Circuit Court before Judge Vonda Evans, and he receives a sentence of 17 to 28 years for his role in the murder of Jane Bashara. This isn't the last we hear of Joe Gentz, because in 2014, he files a motion to withdraw the plea, but the motion is denied. And in 2015, he changes his story again because he could, quote, no longer live knowing that Mr. Bashara was completely innocent. Yeah, you heard that right. He changed his story because Bob Bashara was completely innocent. Gens provides a sworn affidavit that on January 30th, 2012, police contacted Gens asking him to come in for an interview. While he was meeting with police, he told them that he was mad at Bob because Bob wouldn't pay him for a couple of jobs, including work he'd done in the Bashara home. Gens was upset about this, so on the afternoon of January 24th, he broke into the Bashara home wanting to steal something, and he would get his money from Bob that way by stealing. But when he entered the garage, Jane was returning from work, and in a rage, he attacked her. He strangled her, and he hit her in the head with an object. Then he put her body in the car and drove it to the location in Detroit where it was found. Gentz said that in the police version of events, Bob hired him to kill Jane, but that's not true. In this affidavit, Gentz says police forced him to accept their version of events because police had been after Bob Bashara for a long time. Gentz said the police coached him and they quizzed him and they wanted him to get the story, the part where Bob paid him for the murder, against to get that just right. So this is all really compelling stuff, right? That Gens wanted to make things right, and the police made him say what he did, and Bob is the victim here. Police had it out for Bob, and that's why Gens admitted to the murder being at Bob's request. Police made him say that. But not so fast. Because Gens walked the whole thing back, he would later admit that he had a fellow inmate write everything out, and that he signed it without reading it. But Bob would testify during an evidentiary appeal that Gross Point Park Public Safety Director David Hiller had a grudge against Bob stemming from an incident some 15 years earlier. In this incident, Bob allegedly had inappropriate contact with a child. However, Bob was never charged with anything, and he denies that anything inappropriate happened. But all I can think about are the kids who sat on Bob's lap when he dressed up as Santa Claus. Ugh. So if you're following along at home, Bob Bashara, husband, father, entrepreneur, and BDSM enthusiast, is again the victim. And when you step back and look at it, it's fascinating, really, how he always positions himself as the good guy and the injured party, even when he's sent to prison for attempting to have Joe Gentz, a developmentally disabled adult, murdered. Bob was only acting to avenge the death of his wife. It was not his fault. 
Bob is the victim here. And listeners, if you're in need of good news, I am happy to tell you that while it took more than a year to put the case together, on April 17th, 2013, Bob Bashara is charged with first-degree murder in the death of his wife. He's also charged with solicitation to commit murder, suborning of perjury during a capital trial, witness intimidation, obstruction of justice, and some other charges. And while this might seem like a straightforward case, murder for hire, there's a lot to sort through. Police had to go through literally hundreds of tips, scientifically analyze a lot of data, including cell phone information that we talked about from the night of Jane's murder. They have to pull video surveillance from the community. They had to travel to Texas, Oregon, Kentucky, Illinois, and Iowa to track down evidence, interview suspects and witnesses, and chase some leads. There was nothing simple about this case. It's on October 7th, 2014, that Bob's trial begins in Wayne County's Third Circuit Court with the Honorable Judge Vonda Evans presiding. For the prosecution, the county had Chief of Special Investigations Robert Moran, and with him was Lead Assistant Prosecuting Attorney Lisa Lindsay. The prosecution's theory of the case is that Bob wanted to be rid of Jane, his wife, and the mother of his two children so he could have access to the $800,000 saved in her 401k retirement portfolio, and he could sell the family home, allowing him to purchase the house on Kensington and start fresh with his slaves as Master Bob. Lillian Diallo and Michael McCarthy were in court for Bob's defense. Their theory and the defense strategy they used was that the police immediately focused on Bob Bashara without pursuing other suspects. One of those suspects was a friend of Joe Gentz, known as J.J. In the days following Jane's murder, both Gentz and J.J. were overheard talking about all the money they'd made. Detectives countered that there was no evidence tying J.J. to the crime. And the defense also focused on the loss of Jane's clothing when she was transferred from the medical examiner to the funeral home. You may recall that Jane's body went from the crime scene to the Wayne County Medical Examiner's office, And when her autopsy was done, the clothing she was wearing at the time of the murder should have been packaged and sent for testing. Instead, they were delivered to the funeral home along with Jane's body, which contaminated the clothing and meant they could not be used as evidence. A very frustrating error. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the trial, which lasts for weeks. It goes on till December, but I do want to hit the highlights. During the trial, there were more than 70 witnesses called to testify but Bob Bashara was not one of them. Bob really wanted to take the stand in his own defense, but his attorneys advised against it. Joe Gentz was supposed to testify. Remember, his cooperation, which meant participating at Bob's trial, was part of his plea deal. But when the trial was underway, Gentz refused. Both Janet Lehman and Rachel Gillette took the stand and testified not only about their relationship with Bob Bashara, but how their own lives and mental health had been damaged because of their interactions with him. Remember, Bob told both women that he was either divorced or in the middle of a divorce, that he loved them, that he wanted a relationship with them, a BDSM-driven polyamorous binding of the three of them together. These were not the only women who testified at trial. In a November 11, 2014 story in the Detroit Free Press, Former Chicago police officer Therese Giffen testified that Bob asked her to create posts online 
that portrayed Jane Bashara in a negative light. Giffen did as Bob asked because at that point she still believed him and she trusted him. He also asked Giffen to write a letter on his behalf talking about what a good man he was. And let's pause here just for a moment because Bob Bashara is asking one of the women he met in the BDSM community to write a letter advocating for him. This is a woman that he lied to, that he had an affair with, that by her own admission, he literally tied to a cross and whipped. This is who Bob Bashara turned to for support. When he was in jail, he continued to contact her, asking her to visit Rachel Gillette, his former mistress. He pleaded with Giffen to talk to Gillette and to ask her to stand by Bob. Bob literally mentioned the song, Stand By Your Man. And we need to go back to the fact that immediately following Jane's murder, Gillette took out a personal protection order. She didn't want anything to do with Bob Bashara, but he violated the order repeatedly by attempting to contact her. And when that didn't work, he asked others to contact her on his behalf. While it was Bob's position that Joe Gens was threatening him and Bob was living in fear because of it, there were several people who testified they had never heard Bob mention Joe Gens before Jane's murder. They stated that Bob never mentioned the threats or the fear until after Jane's body was found. If Bob's cousins would testify at the trial, we will refer to her as Chloe. I'm using an alias here because it's not her fault that she's related to Bob. She stated that on the night of Jane's funeral, she was with Bob and his mother, Nancy, as the news came on. That was when they, Chloe and Nancy, learned that Bob was involved in the BDSM community. Chloe turned to Bob and said, you were having an affair? Bob denied the affair. He described the BDSM community as a, quote, outside interest. And this is how his family learned of his infidelity or outside interest, as he put it. When Bob's mother, Nancy Bashara, took the stand, she talked about the loving relationship she enjoyed with Bob, Jane, and their children, that she took Bob and his family on trips, and that they all appeared very happy. Learning of her son's affairs, his involvement with the BDSM community, and the sex dungeon came as a surprise. Nancy had never met Bob's longtime mistress, Rachel Gillette. But Nancy Bashara learned later that she'd been to Gillette's home to let her dog outside. Yeah, um, Bob's mom went to Rachel Gillette's place when Rachel wasn't there. The story, as I understand it, is that Bob called his mom and said, Hey, I need a favor. One of my friends has a dog that needs to be let out. And mom, would you mind going over to help? It's just a couple blocks away. Nancy agreed and went to Gillette's home to attend to her dog, not knowing that she was in the house that belonged to her son's mistress and slave. Also testifying during the trial was hard luck lounge bartender Christy Sample. If you recall, Bob owned the building that housed the hard luck lounge, and Sample would testify that on the day of the murder, Bob arrived at the bar just after 5 p.m. and stayed about 40 minutes. He got ready to leave. He got Christie's attention and said, hey, I'll be back in an hour. While she had seen and spoken to Bob several times over the course of her employment at the lounge, until that day, he had never advised her of his comings and goings from the building. On that same night, another tenant in the building, a woman named Missy Keller, 
She said that the evening of the 24th, she saw Bob in the alley behind the building. He was picking up trash and cleaning up. This was something she'd never seen him do before. And later that same night, he asked Missy and the friend she had visiting to come with him into a vacant apartment elsewhere in the building. And it sounds to me like Bob is using Missy Keller to establish an alibi. And based on her testimony during the trial, I think Missy Keller felt the same way. One of the witnesses who linked Joe Gentz to Jane's murder, Detroit Homicide Sergeant Lance Sullivan, he took the stand to answer questions about video evidence he reviewed in the case. He'd collected video from a fast food restaurant about three miles from the alley where Jane's body was recovered. The night that Jane disappeared, there is video of Gentz, dressed in dark clothing, entering the restaurant and accessing the restroom of the facility at 7.47 that night. On December 18, 2014, Bob is found guilty of all charges. In January of 2015, he is sentenced to life in prison for conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and first-degree murder, one to five years for the obstruction of justice conviction, 18 to 40 years for the solicitation of murder charge for Jane, and two to 10 years for the bribing, intimidating, or interfering with the witness conviction. All of this is on top of the plea he took for trying to arrange the murder of Joe Gentz. During the sentencing, Jane's mother, 82-year-old Lorraine Engelbrecht, addressed the court, but her words were clearly directed at Bob Bashara. Why didn't he just go and live his scummy dungeon life and leave her daughter and grandchildren alone? Because there will never be closure for what he did, and she hoped that he would take three or four minutes every day three or four minutes, the same amount of time it took her daughter Jane to die, would he take those minutes to think about what he did? Long after the trial was over, his attorney Lillian Diallo would say that Bob thinks he's not only the smartest guy in the room, but the smartest guy on the planet. She said representing him was a challenge because he thought he could tell her how to do her job. Bob Bashara would file a motion for a new trial, but Judge Evans denied the motion. Bob then appealed her ruling, taking it to the Court of Appeals. This is the same court that his father, the well-liked, well-respected George Bashara, was appointed to back in 1972. The Court of Appeals turned him down as well. So Bob did what Bob does and appealed that decision with the Michigan Supreme Court. And in May of 2018, they also denied his request for a new trial. In May of 2019, Bob filed a writ of habeas corpus with the U.S. District Court in the city of Detroit, and from what I can tell, they have not yet returned their decision. As of January 2020, Joe Gens is housed at the Muskegon Correctional Facility in West Michigan. He won't be eligible for parole until the spring of 2029 when he is 64 years old. Bob Bashara was not happy with his placement in Manistee, Michigan, and petitioned to be moved closer to the Detroit area. He said he needed access to his attorneys and his legal team, and of course, to make it easier for his mother Nancy to visit him while he is incarcerated. Bob Bashara is currently serving his sentence at the Ryan Correctional Facility in the city of Detroit. He spends each day less than five miles from the location where Jane's body was dumped on a cold January night. In 2012. This concludes our look at the murder of Jane Bashara, and this series on the murder of Jane Bashara was researched by Haley Gray. 
I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Thank you.